Welcome back to the Corner of Story and Game. As promised, Jim Zub is once again stopped by, this time to talk about games and gaming. Jim is a wildly prolific writer, primarily known for his work in comic books. However, he has been involved in the creation of several tabletop role-playing game products, as well as a board game. Jim, thanks for coming back. It's my pleasure. Sit here by the fire. We can uh, chat up a storm again. It's all Fantastic. Good. You're getting into character, which is perfect, because today we're going to talk about games and gaming, uh, both the professional stuff you've done and uh, touch on your personal experiences as well. Um, get us started. Why don't you uh, give us a quick recap of your journey into gaming specifically? I mean, everybody knows you're a comic book writer, and we, we've we <laughs> touched on that, but let's talk right. about Jim the Gamer. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be a writer now if it wasn't for tabletop gaming, honestly. Uh, it sounds weird because I've literally done a TEDx talk about this exact subject. Oh, I was going to touch on that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that gaming has really transformed my life and given me a lot of skills that I use every single day in my creative career. Um, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was eight years old uh, with my older brother. And it became a bridge for us to communicate with each other and really strengthen a bond between us. Uh, it excited me in terms of entertaining people and getting the character and improvisation and everything else. And it um, taught me a lot about entertainment and, you know, especially that spontaneous, you know, quick ideas and, and being able to change directions and all that kind of thing. And uh, even after my brother went off to university, I started gaming with a bunch of my other friends a lot of D&D, but then we moved on to all kinds of systems. There is not a game that we would not try, it felt like. Um, but most notably, a lot of the White Wolf games, but even before that, the Palladium games, we were playing up a storm of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Robotech and Rifts and Heroes Unlimited, uh, the Marvel superhero role-playing game, you know, non-Palladium stuff, mm -hmm. um, a little bit of Shadowrun and Cyberpunk and Call of Cthulhu and pretty much, you know, you kind of name it, we would run the gamut at some point or right. another. Uh, we absolutely loved it. And, and it defined a lot of those years for me. Uh, I would carry that through to, um, you know, when I was in college, uh, I kept introducing people to gaming. I made lots of new friends wherever I went, thanks to gaming groups. And that's also how I met my, my wife was through uh, a gaming group as well in downtown Toronto. So other than that, nothing. Other than my creative <laughs> career, my love life, and uh, my livelihood, right. gaming has not done anything for me at all. It's so we have a... the gym sub we have because of gaming. Yeah, for better or for worse. It's all, <laughs> it's all <laughs> the dice's fault. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Oh, well, that's, that's a lot of tabletop, but you didn't mention, <laughs> did you play, are you a video game player? Are you a board game player? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So in and in amongst all that stuff, we were playing tons of video games. Um, you know, uh, my my dad bought an Atari when they first came out. We had a Commodore 64 that we would play tons and tons of games on there. I loved those original, uh, you know, Pool of Radiance and the and the D&D games that were on there as well. Mm -hmm. um, there was a game that we really obsessed over, my brother and I, for a while. And it's obscure as all hell. It was an electronic arts game called Mail Order Monsters, where you could like build your own monster. And I remember the game. Oh my god! We were obsessed with that. There was another game called I think called Paradroids that was like this very strange kind of uh, you're a robot moving through these levels of this ship that's been taken over by a computer virus or something. Uh, we love that game to bits. We got a Nintendo eventually. When my brother went off to university, I got a Sega Genesis, and then I um, 
with my allowance and some uh, birthday money, I got a Super Nintendo. So yeah, just endless kind of streams of, of video games. Through college, I didn't buy any systems. So friends of mine would have the Nintendo 64 or the PlayStation. But when I started working, uh, I bought myself a PlayStation 2 and have been buying PlayStations ever since. So oh, you're a PlayStation you know, guy. Yeah, so PS3, PS4, mm -hmm. PS5 now. So play a lot of those and I still play a lot of PC games. Uh, the first animation studio I worked at had, that was the first place I ever was that had a, a high-speed internet connection. <laughs> so after hours, we would do LAN parties and we would also play online games because it was like no ping time. Yep. So you could play Quake or Quake 2. You could play StarCraft or Rainbow Six, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, lots and lots of gaming. Nice. Uh, lots of tabletop uh, board games as well. Um, you know, grew up playing the original Dungeon or Talisman. Um, you know, obviously the casual games that everyone else plays, whatever Scrabble, Monopoly, and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But now, also a very fervent gamer. Uh, my gaming group, we love playing a lot of co-op board games. We're obsessed with everything from like Zombicide or Burgle Brothers, um, or partially kind of co-op games. Like the Conan board game has got this one against all kind of thing that I think is really fun. Yeah. When we designed the Wayward board game, we specifically made it so it would be a co-op game because I wanted to make a game that I could play with my friends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so just stuff like that. Yeah, love love gaming in all different forms. Love that interactivity. Even more so than, like I love films and and animation and stuff, but gaming and the interactive element of it is is such a defining part of of kind of who i am and what i like to do so well to bring that all together out of all those games growing up was there what, what was the first one that really jumped out at you because of the writing like whether it was lore or narrative or dialogue or plot points you, you're talking about tabletop games or you're talking about video games or? i'm leaving it open for you to interpret I mean, I know it's the cliche, but it is for good reason. Like D&D &D felt bottomless to me, you know, like there are images from the original Monster Manual and the Player's Handbook that are like etched into my brain because mm -hmm. I stared at them so long and I copied them on paper so many times and I, I wrote out those character stats so many times because um, I loved them and I, I they just seemed iconic to me and and the the open-ended kind of worlds that they were weaving was really exciting to me that you could... You, yes, if you had artistic skill, you could draw the stuff, but just having grid paper or a hex map, I could make environments mm -hmm. and then imagine and populate them with these dungeons and with these locations. That was so vibrant and so exciting to me and learning those factoids. I think there's an age where kids are realizing that the world is a very, very wide open and scary place. And so codification, the ability to have rules, mm. to test the limits of those rules as well, you know, the rebellion of being a teenager or whatever, but also tell me what the limits are, show me how these things work. And so gaming can be a really potent kind of device. And whether it's a kid, I wasn't of the right age, but I know kids who, whatever, they they memorize every single one of the Pokemon or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Or or they are obsessed with Yu-Gi-Oh or, or something like that. For me, that was the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and the Monster Manual. Like that was memorize those names, those words, those ideas, those concepts, and just permanently etch them into your brain for whatever insane reason. And your family is like, why aren't you learning, you know, school stuff? And you're like, I am learning those things, <laughs> but this is actually fun. This is actually what I love. You right. Know? And 
thankfully that's all worked out well you know <laughs> well now now they use dungeons and dragons in school yeah. they they actually use it as a tool i know in it's schools. crazy <laughs> you know go, living through the satanic panic essentially growing <laughs> up playing DD, a very similar era to the stranger things kids um it's hard to explain to people now how much of a thing that was that you hid from others like it is bad you do not tell people you do this it's satanic evil strange mock worthy yeah all the corny cliches you know of the jocks versus nerds that now feel very played out we were in the thick of it and yeah. it was it was real man like if you played D, &D it was like why when i my first year of high school was my brother's last year of high school and he sort of defiantly they would play he and his friends would play in the cafeteria like over lunch hour they would get an hour in every day they would yeah. game and they were just mocked viciously for it. And I played a couple sessions with them and I couldn't do it. Like it was too much, the stare of everyone. I couldn't get into character. I didn't want that audience, you know, like that was just too much and too weird. And we were all socially awkward as hell. Like it's not <laughs> like, it's not like we were cool. You know, it was awkward. It was strange. It was difficult. And then that idea of doing that in front of everybody, forget yeah. it. No yeah, no, it was, it was a hard a hard time to be a gamer, especially like I, I we're the pretty much the same age and yeah. growing up in the Bible belt of Alberta during the oh satanic gosh. panic. Yeah. It, I there can't was, even imagine that. Everybody knew somebody who committed suicide yeah. because of D and D or was worshiping the person devil knew or, someone who knew someone who knew someone and, and just enough close enough that they felt like they could, you know, yeah, it, it just cast a huge shadow on the thing. My mom uh, actually took away our D and D books for a little while. I don't know. Did I tell this story last time? I can't remember. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, my my mom took away our D and D books, and um, she she saw some talk show, you know, whatever Donahue or something, where they had interviewed a parent about D and D suicide or something. And um, so she took the books away. And it's that awkward thing where my brother and I were smart enough to realize that if we freaked out, that that would just play into her fears. But we were super upset, and we wanted our books back. And so we had to somehow stay cool, but also convince her we needed these things back, but not too intensely because we wanted <laughs> to think that we're obsessed freaks. And finally, the way we got around, we did the, the go around was we convinced my dad to play a session. And the good news was the way my brother, my brother, who's like 13 years old at the time, he, you know, wouldn't remember what I said, codification, right? So instead of what, if you were going to teach someone the game now, you would give them a pre-gen character and you would make it the most pleasurable, fun experience possible. Right. But my brother, 13, you know, in the middle of the 80s, he doesn't know. <laughs> so he's just running my dad through a character creation process that takes an hour and a half mm -hmm. and is the most pedantic and excruciating, you know, thing. And making my dad fill out a character sheet, every last stupid <laughs> option that doesn't matter until my dad's bored to tears. And then goes on the first adventure and it's first edition D and D. So it's lethal as hell. So he gets in his first encounter and he dies. <laughs> and so he makes a character for an hour and a half and he plays for half an hour and croaks. And we're cackling. We think this is the funniest <laughs> thing ever, right? right? Cause it's awesome. A giant spider kicked his ass and we're laughing and whatever. And no word of a lie. It's like out of a movie. My dad goes to talk to my mom in the bedroom and my brother and I are in the next room. We cup our ears <laughs> to the wall to hear what they're saying. And I will never forget this. My mom goes, well, is it satanic? And my dad goes, it's not satanic. It's just stupid. <laughs> it's 
she's like, what? They just sit in a circle and they talk and they talk and they talk and they roll dice and they write down numbers and they're using a bunch of math and they're telling a story. It's, it's meaningless, but they're not committing any crimes and they're not causing any problems. Just give them the damn books. <laughs> and so I want like an edition of D&D to come out that says it's not satanic, it's stupid. Yep. You know, like that's the, the press quote on it, right? It needs to be on a t-shirt and bumper <laughs> stickers. And... It's, it's just like, that was the truth of it to us. It was just us being goobers, like us just being idiots and silly and fun and laughing. And, you know, every time we saw a new movie, incorporating something from it into the game, because that was the extent of our imaginations at different points. And, you know, like, it's fine. It was good. Yeah. And our friends were into it and it was our little, little escapist, you know, kind of place. And uh, when I made my brother, my, you know, when you're four years older than someone, it's not a big deal once you're middle-aged or whatever, but at that crucial age, your 12 year old brother doesn't want anything to do with the eight year old. (laughs) You can't, you can't play physical games because he'll trounce you. Even video games, he's got better hand-eye coordination. He's just going to crush me. Right. But at the gaming table on my turn, he has to listen to me and I get to choose what I want to do. And if I, my dice are as good as anyone else's. Yeah. And if I pull it off, I feel like a million bucks. If I come up with a cool inventive idea, I feel amazing. If I make him laugh and when I get my brother laughing, he can't breathe and he's like choking and sputtering and like, like his eye and his crying and his whole face is beat red. I feel like I have conquered everything because I, I made him shut down because he's laughing so hard. Yeah. It still happens. My brother and I, we play uh, video games and tabletop games together and I can still crack a joke every so often that just like makes him lose all dignity. <laughs> and that is one of my finest, you know, achievements. Wow. <laughs> Entertainment, right? That's exactly. what it's all about. Exactly. Yeah. And at the same time as a child, you're learning the skills and you're getting agency. So powerful so cool yeah it's super potent and it obviously you know made me want to do this stuff in one form or another mm-hmm. we also it has so the echoes that carry forward in such weird ways like my brother and i remember looking through the old modules and in the front of an old D adventure module almost all of them were based on tournaments that were run at conventions so it would say you know the ghost tower of Invernus was originally a tournament module gen con 82 or something and we were like oh Gen Con. <laughs> Can you imagine ever going to Gen Con? Like that was something we talked about going yeah. to one of these conventions. You'd look through Dragon Magazine and there would be those little want ads for the different conventions all around North America or sometimes even Europe. And we thought, wow, like what it would be like to go to one of these things. And then, you know, I started going to conventions and then start going professionally and then have a booth, you know, at Gen Con every single year. And I'm boothing with Howard Taylor and Tracy Hickman and hanging out with all these industry luminaries whose stuff I grew up with. And that does not make sense to me, (laughs) but it is amazing. Um, And my brother had still never been. And so for Gen Con 50, was that 2018, I think? 2017, 2018 was the 50th Gen Con. I gave my brother a combined sort of birthday Christmas present. And I said, you're going to Gen Con. And so I got him, you know, paid for his flight and stayed in the hotel with me. And he got a, uh, an industry badge. He got a um, an exhibitor badge. So he got to go before the show opened and he got to go to all the industry parties and he got to schmooze with all these people that he stuff he'd grown up with and got his books autographed and yeah. hang out with the artists long before the booth opened so he can just have like a 20 minute conversation with whatever Larry Elmore or, you know, like wow. all these people. 
and he and he brings some he loves doing costume stuff so he got dressed up one day and wandered around and got his photo taken as a wizard and he's having an amazing time and and at first i'm like trying to keep him entertained and then eventually he signed up for so many things i'm just letting him loose <laughs> right i can on. i can go do my own stuff or whatever and he got to see for the first time i think behind the scenes of like because when you see the photographs, it is a lot of fun. I'm taking selfies and we're going to restaurants and you're hanging out and whatever. But, you know, you're also putting yourself out there socially. Mm-hmm. And and this is a hard thing to explain to people because I don't want it to be like, oh, woe is me. Oh, nail my wrist to my forehead, the poor, poor artist. But like, you know, when you meet a, someone who wants to meet you or they want to get a book signed or something, um, this may be the only interaction they ever have with you. And it will cast a long shadow on how they think of you and your work for now till forever. Mm-hmm. If you have a good two minute conversation with them and you're exuberant and enjoyable, they will feel a loyalty to your work that will carry forward. And they may buy every single thing you do from then on. It makes a big difference. It, it transforms, it takes the concept of the work and it humanizes it, right? And so my brother is seeing me having these interactions endlessly, like, you know, 50, 60, 100 of them in a day. And we finish the show and we're going out for dinner and I'm very talkative and I'm very social, but at the dinner table, I'm just a lump. And he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm spent, like I'm done. (laughs) And we got to go out to an industry party tonight. So I'm like trying to get the batteries recharged so we can go out and do this till after midnight and then wake up before eight o'clock cram some breakfast in our maws and then go back to the booth and do it all over again right. four days in a row right and by the end of the show i'm like a corpse just sort of being dragged around the convention center and i'm loving it i love these shows for you know it it is amazing but it's hard on your body and it's hard on your your brain and he got to see that side of it instead of just the selfies and the oh look you're at the airport oh look you're you know you're at your booth kind of thing right and so that was i think was really helpful uh and in kind of a fascinating experience but we get to the end of the weekend and we're at the airport and we're getting ready to go home and i look over and i go well your first one's free but now now you're on your own so i assume <laughs> you're coming back next year because he's just been walking on air for the whole weekend right and he's nodding and he's sort of nodding he goes i don't think i'm gonna come back and i was like what and i looked at him and he turns to me and he's literally got tears you know, shaking on the edge of his eyelids. And he goes, it'll never be better than that. Like, you are absolutely right. You had a uh, profoundly different experience than most people will for their first kind of gaming convention. Amen, yeah. And, uh, you know, you recognize that and whatever. I hope you get to come another time. But that was particularly, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) diamond-encrusted, ridiculous. So Good for him. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it was a real good bonding moment for the two of us. And kind of joke and laugh about it yeah yeah but you you talk about the conventions which are a big part of the professional side of gaming they can be yeah and how that can take a lot out of you i'm I'm curious mm-hmm. are you um are you an introverted person an extra somewhere in the middle i'm an extroverted person i am so i generally i do get energy from those interactions mm-hmm. but it's just the sheer like your voice gets worn out or you realize if you're not careful you can fall into just like broken record behavior of the same kinds of sentences and the same 
things. And because people are responding to it, you're like, oh, pull the string on my back and I will say this <laughs> line, you know, and then I'll sell a book. And you're like, you got to watch that it doesn't become this weird inhuman right. thing that you're doing. You know what I mean? So you're trying to constantly it's improvisational you're reading someone what do they want out of this interaction like do they want warm and funny do they want to ask you some factoid about the work do they want to impress upon you that they are also a creator like what is it that right. they are expecting out of this you know um and you want to be yourself but you also want to be giving and 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 empathetic to what they need out of this interaction you know and sometimes you can't give them what they need right like they want to be your friend and you're like, I don't know you and you know me through my work and that is very humbling and, and wonderful, but I already have dinner plan. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not, maybe professionally we may become friends over a longer period of time, but that is not in the cards right now. That's not how that's going to work. Yeah, and sure. so you're trying to sort of carefully rebuff someone, but not hurt them or, or frustrate them or whatever, you know, it's like all those things. It's, it's a very weird kind of a dance that you're doing there in the, in the convention as you're having these interactions. And sometimes there's people come back year after year and they are literally there. They don't buy anything of yours unless they can get it from you in person. Hmm. And they want that transaction. They want to have that interaction. And it's very potent and very cool and very humbling because you're like, wow, like this is, loyalty in terms of my work and they don't care what I'm working on who I'm working on whether it's mainstream or independent they're buying it because I did it and you're like wow like that is very 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 cool yeah and uh that is something that you don't ever want to sort of take for granted you know having gone to conventions that you're at you do have a reputation as being the most energetic guy in the room and a lot of fun <laughs> to talk you. to and I appreciate so it you whatever you're doing you do it well and you're doing it right so thanks yeah. I, you know the the thing is because i'm teaching like i you know i've been teaching for whew, going on you know 20 years now i'm used to being around people i'm used to public speaking i'm used to figuring out when i need to fill in the gap and when someone else is carrying the baton or holding the conch shell or whatever other analogy we want to use you know um and so I'm pretty good at that. Every so often I can, I can get, you can tell when I'm nervous, if I overwhelm the discourse, like I'm just going to fill it with noise. Sometimes if I'm on a panel and I'm with people who I'm a, like, I'm a huge fan of or whatever, I should just shut up. And sometimes <laughs> I'll just sort of ramble and I go, no, stop, stop, stop it. You know, because in my head, I know I'm making a mistake because that's how I'm filling that nervous energy up, you know? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I do try and, and make a good impression. And if I can't do that or be that, I'd rather leave the booth for a while and have someone come back later than them have a bad experience. You know, wow. there was one convention I went to where I got the news that one of the projects I was working on was being canceled prematurely 15 minutes before the show opened. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I told the editor, I'm like, you really couldn't have waited till Monday. And he goes, oh, crap, you're at the show, aren't you? I'm like, yep. And he goes, oh, Jim, I'm like, I will talk to you next week. And I just hung up on him. Oh, wow. And I I looked, Stacy, my wife was with me at the show and she just looked at me and I was pretty ashen. And I said, I'm gone for 20 minutes. Like, I, I need this to like, I'm going to do a lap. <laughs> and I kind of come back and, and pretend that didn't happen, you know, because wow. you can't, you can't be there sulking or, or angry. No one wants to hear that from mm -hmm. you. That's not what they're here for, you know? Um, 
it's one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had in my life. 2019, my mother-in-law passed away. Stacy's mom uh, passed away. And I had booked, I was a, uh, Amazon brought me out to San Diego Comic-Con and I was doing a week in Los Angeles afterward to pitch uh, Wayward and Skull Kickers and stuff to a bunch of Hollywood studios. So there was two solid weeks of commitments that I had made. And three days before the show, my mother-in-law dies. And so I'm getting ready to cancel everything. Yeah. And my father-in-law and Stacy are like, no, it's going to take us a while to pull together all the stuff. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do here. Go. Oh, wow. And I went. But now I'm at San Diego Comic-Con with this emotional, you know, like thing in my gut. And my uh, brother-in-law had posted on, on social media. Well, once he posted it publicly, I had to post something. Well, that means everyone now knows there's been a death in the family. So everyone that's coming over to me is offering their condolences. Right. And that yeah. is a very nice thing. But complete strangers are stopping you in the aisles or getting a signature, getting a photo, and then telling me condolences. Mm. And then they're not doing it to be mean. It's just happening. Yeah. And it's happening hundreds of times. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I, I just didn't realize it was going to be like this. And so every day after the show, I'm like, oh, I can, you know, I'm not a celebrity, but those are the moments when you realize how horrific it would be to be, you know, recognized everywhere. Yeah, you can't move an inch without someone wanting your attention and your emotional energy. And I was just like, oh, okay, okay. And so I, I was as dialed back as I could. I did the bare minimum for all the events and things like that. And then mm -hmm. I just kind of stayed with close friends and you know was on the phone a lot with Stacy and just kind of made it through that show by the skin of my teeth and I just thought well I've learned some things <laughs> you know I've learned some things about my own where my my threshold is on this stuff and it's yeah. definitely a, a, a fascinating experience um, that now I can I, I'm not chuckling because it was fun but it's like I kind of go wow that was in hindsight I don't know what the hell I was thinking but it, it was a thing yeah. that, we, that we did, you know. And you're still human, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like all of us, you know, working on these things, the internet and social media can be such a fascinating space because you can get a lot of love out of nowhere at any time of day. You know, mm -hmm. someone tweets at you from Spain that they love the new issue of a comic that you did and you're just like kind of knocked back. Wow, that's so very nice. But equally criticism or questions or right. little jabs and all that sort of stuff and you have to kind of take it all in turn and you you try to filter it and go okay this is a time when i'm ready for this kind of interaction or this is when i want to do this stuff and then there's a lot of other times you're like this is not a priority this is not this is not important right now you know i will uh offload this or this does not need a response right and and that is a a thing you have to learn and the more you do this stuff, the more you have to learn it. And I'm very, very, you know, um, I think Henry Cavill actually has an incredible attitude about all this stuff. He was asked about, you know, trolls and people, you know, ripping on him or ripping on his movies or work or things like that. And he said they wouldn't something to the degree of they wouldn't do it if they weren't passionate. And, and I try and recognize that they are super into these things and that they love it. 
and they just want what they want and it will never be the perfect vision that's in their heads right and so you can only fail them to different degrees you know what i mean yeah, yeah, yeah and it was like oh that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it and so when someone is super ticked off about something i always try and sort of it's almost like social media aikido you're like redirecting that energy towards look man you are angry about you know it not being the way it used to be or things changing or you're changing or you're never going to be able to recapture the purity of the innocence of discovering these things for the first time. And that's really hard, man. Like, yeah. you know, uh, the comics that we read now are not the comics that I wrote, you know, that I read growing up and I'm trying to capture some of that energy in the stories that I tell, but it'll never be pure in that way. Right. right? right. So what there is valid criticism of course and it's a matter of trying to trying to filter through that thing and go okay where have i misstepped but in the end it's like i've got to make stuff that i'm proud of and then kind of keep you know keep rolling with it mm -hmm. yeah we're bouncing all over the place we are. With this conversation. We are. Uh, well let's pull it back into gaming for Absolutely. a minute because that's what we're here to talk about yes um before i push into some of the other questions so i want to circle back really quick um TED Talk. We did say we were going to yes. quickly touch on. You yeah. did a TED Talk on gaming. I did a TEDx talk. It's TEDx important talk. to differentiate because sometimes people will get an inflated ego with this stuff. <laughs> Don't get me wrong; it's still something. It's a very cool thing. Yep. But yes, it's a it's a satellite talk of the of the TED system. Right. Yep. I was asked to do. I was originally asked to do a talk about comics, and um, I actually had quite a lead time. I think I had nine months to put together this talk. Even though I am very comfortable in front of a crowd, I'm very comfortable with public speaking, I'm very comfortable um, talking in general about the craft and about things, that TED Talk was one of the hardest things I've ever done because the format of it is completely different from how I like to do things. It is when you're, particularly when you're working with copyrighted material, it all has to be approved. Mm -hmm. And by all the people, all the imagery you have to show, all that stuff, you have to run it past all those license holders and stuff like that. Because gotcha. Ted never wants to have any problems with it, right? Then on top of that, the, everything gets evaluated, you know, like ahead of time. So I have to script this entire thing, which includes all the spontaneous parts <laughs> or all the personal uh, elements of it. Plus I'm talking about my life instead of the craft of making things or the fiction or any of that stuff. So you're talking about highly personal things in a highly scripted structured format that is not my strength mm -hmm. in front of a crowd of 600 people. And this crowd in particular, more than half of them were teenagers because they bust in all these high schools. Hmm. And if you want to know if you are killing it or not, are teenagers on their phones or are they watching you? Right. Yeah. And I knew it was just going to be very, very, very difficult. And midway through the development of it, I realized that my talk was not going to be about comics, that all of it rooted from gaming, that if I wanted to talk about my creative career, I actually needed to talk about Dungeons and Dragons. And so I had to then tell them, by the way, I'm pivoting and I'm doing this completely different talk than what I originally <laughs> thought we were doing, but it's going to be better. And they were like, cool. They were generally the, the people in charge were great. Um, but I had to kind of rebuild the whole thing. And then I scripted it and got it down to this format that I really liked. And I'm trying to practice it in front of uh, family and friends. And I'm talking about myself and my personal life and I've memorized it. And it's now this cold, hard, robotic thing. And my wife is like, 
I've heard you tell these stories and these anecdotes before warmly and richly, and they're great. And now you're delivering it like a mannequin. Like you're just, you've, you've, you've squeezed all the emotion out of it and you've turned it into this perfect polished cold marble, you know? And I was like, Oh God, what am I doing? And so like a month and a half out, like six weeks out, I tossed the script and I just started kind of improving it based on what I remembered from it until I felt comfortable with it as a general thing mm -hmm. rather than word for word memorization. Yep. One of the other things that was super valuable to me, we're talking five weeks out, one of the people in charge of that particular TED talk, he is a high school teacher and he works in a, a one of the classes he does is like debate. And so what he does is he asked if I wanted to come into his high school and do my TED talk for his class. And he's like, they are 16 year olds. If you get their attention, you know it. And if you don't, you'll know it instantly. And he's like, you're going to be in front of five, 600 of them, including these kids. So why not sort of pre, you know, smart, recheck yeah. it yeah. against the thing. And so I went in and did the presentation. And the best part was I had a huge blind spot on that talk. I did the whole talk about how amazing Dungeons Dragon was and how it brought all these creative things out of me. And, and all the, the vast majority of the talk was the same as what's in the final version. But I didn't explain what D&D &D was <laughs> because my baseline assumption was that it's so popular now that everyone knows and I didn't want to bore anybody. Right. And at the very end, I, unlike a real TED Talk, the teacher said, does anyone have any questions? And the one kid just shot her hand up and said, this all sounds really awesome, mister, but what's Dungeons and Dragons? And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. And so then on the spot, I had to spontaneously explain it. And then I went back and completely rebuilt the intro to incorporate what is a role-playing game. Nice. <laughs> nice. Oh. And that made the talk infinitely better <laughs> and way more cohesive. Um, so yeah, uh, the other thing that I did for that talk that freaked me out was I wasn't sure when I was going to go a few days out, they give you your time slot. Right. And I wanted to go middle to late morning. You don't want to go first. God knows you don't want to warm up the crowd <laughs> and you don't want to go right before lunch because then everyone just wants to go for lunch. But by the time you get to the middle of the afternoon, these teenagers are going to be just like puddles of how many of these talks can they do? Yeah. I don't want to be middle of the afternoon because they're flagging at that point. And lo and behold, I was set for middle of the afternoon. I was like, I'm doomed, I'm doomed. And then a day and a half before the thing, they contacted me and they said, one of the speakers has dropped out. We know you wanted a different time slot. Are you okay with going second? I was like, yes, perfect. Someone else can flub the opening and then I can you know, step up and, and, and it went great. Uh, it went really, really well. I had an amazing, it all kind of came together and really strong. And the best part was um, I finished it and I had, I just walked off backstage and got a really good response from everyone there. And there were other speakers who were just arriving and they had that nervous, oh my God energy. And I knew where everything was by that point. I knew how everything worked. So I just sort of guided them in and go over there and get mic'd up and introducing them to people. Cause all the pressure's off at that point, I'm done. Right. And I felt amazing. I just had like a really nice lunch and chatted with people and I could hear other people sort of pacing back and forth and, you know, under their breath going over their talk. And I was just like, better you than me, buddy. Like I'm, I'm, I'm done. It's out of my head now. I don't ever have to do that again. So yeah. Fantastic. 
Well, anybody who hasn't seen it, I'm going to include a link in the show notes. You definitely cool, need to man. watch it. Yeah, it was, I'm really glad I did it. I got a wonderful response from the industry about it, and people were really, really warm around it. So it's cool. It's uh, I'm glad I did it now. And I was even glad I was doing it, but it was just the the that branding you feel is so much larger than yourself. Mm. And oh God, that's you know, a big one. We're going to have all these expectations around it and all that kind of thing. So, but it's very me, thankfully in the end, which is what I wanted. Nice. Yeah. Well, let's take that concept of uh, being in front of a lot of people. You've yeah. done a lot of live play or actual play, <laughs> streamed yes. play, whatever you want to call it. And you've taken your turn as mints a couple of times, which is really I cool. did. Yeah, I have. It's uh it's a real joy to be, able to you know i've written a lot of minsk uh for the comics and other things for uh dnd and then getting the chance to play them a few times has been uh has been an absolute joy um and just doing the stream games in general there's a there's a nerd liberty kind of of element to it that is a lot of fun and the people that i'm playing with are all very good at what they do stream games are very different from sitting around the table play that's where i was going to a, to a degree that I don't think people fully understand there. Some people have a conspiracy that it's all scripted and it's not. So I can, I can, you know, pop the bubble on that right from the get go. But that being said, it's still a performance. If I'm on camera for three hours, you know, when I'm sitting around with my friends, I can like get a snack and hang out and flip through a book and, Mm -hmm. you know, we are paying attention, but not to the same degree. When you are gaming with your, you know, compatriots in one of these stream games, sometimes you know them, sometimes they're complete strangers. You're all active and you're all listening and you're looking for those moments, moments when you should step in or this is a really good part where you can make an aside or this is a great joke or how can we tie this all back together? So there's this heightened level of improv and entertainment because you want to be entertaining Mm -hmm. i want to be entertaining at the table but with my friends there's a lot more forgiving around that kind of stuff here it's like i need to know the rules i need to know we can't quibble over the little stuff or strategy because the overall momentum of entertainment has to keep going Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and the dungeon master particularly feels that intense amount of responsibility to shepherd this thing through whatever time two hours, three hours, four hours Hmm. to entertain the audience on the fly and keep everyone moving forward and surprised and voices and rules and spells being pulled out of, you know, your butts. And and they've just got to go with it confidently because that's what the stream expects, right? Sometimes with the charity streams, people are donating money so that they can change stuff in the game Mm on the fly and you got to roll with that as well and so it's great it's a really cool experience and i really love doing it but there is a level of um, concentration involved that is very weird Mm -hmm. you know it's the difference between like i don't know playing playing a uh just a fun kind of casual video game or like tonight we're doing dark souls you're like all right like we're doing dark souls we're gonna concentrate because if we don't we're going to get slaughtered like there's a level of of intensity involved with with the stream games even the ones that seem goofy there's like you know we there's usually a break you know midway through the game and all the cameras go dark and they put the sponsor up or whatever and behind the scenes we're like stretching and like (laughs) grabbing a coffee and 
quickly sort of talking like is that okay or sometimes that weird in joke are we is this working for everybody are we good you know yeah, is yeah. everyone yeah is this what do we need or hey so and so isn't getting enough interaction let's give them more of the spotlight so you're not scripting it out you're just sort of making sure everyone's getting their moment and right. sort of going hey or, or then you're asking a quick question you're like did you say earlier about this thing did i mishear that because i want this to come up again you know or something like that so do a callback yeah yeah just make sure it's like happening and then you do the countdown and then everyone gets a big smile and you're back on and away you go you know <laughs> so it's a thing it's a thing it's um it is an amazing thing. I never thought I would see in the gaming industry, obviously, this, you know, streaming celebrities, what the hell, people mm -hmm. who get known for playing games live on camera. It's crazy. crazy. Um, but on the other hand, it does lead to some, I think, some weird expectations that people think that their D&D game is going to be an endless fount of perfect framed <laughs> entertainment and this high level of play and intensity and concentration. And if that makes them better players because they're paying more attention to their fellow players, great. But if it makes them where they assume that their dungeon master is going to be B. Dave Walters or you know Matt Mercer or something, yeah, that's a problem, you know. And that is what they call the Mercer effect. Like, I know, yeah. I know. I feel bad for Matt because like you don't want to be named around that. <laughs> it's kind of a it's a compliment, but it's like yep. a weird one in that broad sense, you know. And he seems to just roll with this stuff endlessly. He's so patient and wonderful about it. So I guess of all the people that would that would have to carry that, he's he's a good man to do it, right? But um, yeah, it is cool in that broader sense. I literally, this is going to sound really corny, but over the holidays, I was at a housewarming party and I knew some of the people there, but I didn't know others. And we were just chatting in general. How do you know the host or whatever? And I said, oh, you know, like I've been gaming with them for almost... God, almost 30 years and they were like oh you love tabletop games yeah and then this one person's like we must have met at another party somewhere and i was like oh maybe like because it's a you know broader circle of friends i'm sure i could have run into them at some other event or whatever mm -hmm. and then we're chatting and chatting and i'm talking to someone else and they're kind of in the conversation and, I, and they start asking me about some of the stream games and all of a sudden the guy goes oh my god you played minsk and then he recognized me from the D, D stream and i was like well yes like that's weird like now we're talking about <laughs> that and glass cannon and these other podcasts and things i've done and and now he's talking to me differently do you know what i mean mm. and that's cool and i'm really excited and and happy but on the other hand it's like we were having a really casual conversation and now it's a very intense right. you know conversation and you're it's like different. okay cool <laughs> You, you don't know me from real life. You know me from this weird, heightened, ridiculous thing. So yeah. you can't blame them for not recognizing you right away because you did look a little different on that. I screen. did. <laughs> I did. That's. I'm amazed he even pulled that out of his head whatsoever. <laughs> right. So, yeah. For the Minsk uh, thing, I shaved my head. Uh, people. Some people thought I did a bald cap or whatever, but no, I actually shaved my head. That was a joke that went too far. Um, <laughs> Chris Perkins and all of us, we were on an email thread going back and forth, and he had invited Mercer to play Mint or to play Boo the hamster. Mm -hmm. And um uh you know, I knew that all the other people on the 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 game were well known. They were all public streamers. I had never done a live game uh, on stage before. That was my first one ever. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of the weakest chain in the link. Like I like I, I'm the weakest link. Like I 
how am I going to keep up with these people? So I said to Greg Tito, who's the PR guy who was organizing all the stuff behind the scenes, I said, I need a costume. Like, I can't just go up there and do the voice. It's not going to be good enough. He's like, okay, no problem. We're in LA where the thing's happening. We'll put something together. We can get you a costume or whatever. And I said, I need like the makeup and whatnot. He goes, well, I mean, we can try and get you a ball cap or whatever. And I laughed and I said, or, you know, I mean, I guess if we were going to go for, I shave my head. And then Mercer basically chimed in and said, do it. You know? <laughs> and I was like, I said, I'll shave my head if, if you're there and we're like taking photos and we do a charity thing around it. And he says, done. And so we did. And That's so cool. that was that all of a sudden I'd committed to it. And my wife was like, are you sure? I was like, well, it's happening now. You know, it's, It'll grow back. It grows back fast. It's fine. And it was a ridiculous experience. You know, I'd met people the day before. And then after the stream game, they didn't realize I was the same person until I walked out of the backstage and I was bald, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> right on. Okay. To put a pin in the live play stuff. Is there something you've learned from all your experiences doing stream games and live plays that you apply to your home game now? Is there any? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the good side of that heightened um, focus is that when you need to, you need to be able to bring that to the game, you know, your tabletop game, your regular tabletop game that I'm keeping a closer eye on. Is everyone engaged? Is everyone doing something? Is everyone pleased? And in, in, if they're not, unless there's some emergency or something, the reason why they're looking at the phone, the reason why they're not engaged, like we can do better, you know, right. like, let's bring everyone on board and make that an experience worthwhile instead of just letting that stuff pass by. I think that I would have earlier where I would have just, well, if you're engaging with me, I'm engaging with you. And it's like, no, if you're sitting here at the table, you're part of this thing. We all, you know, let's figure out what, what we all need to get out of this to have a good time. And that's not that I need you to be on the edge of your seat every moment, but yeah, you know, consistently I want the whole group in there and pumping their fists by the end of a good session. Right? Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of a good note that, because uh, we all see the guy sitting around the table who's on his phone or something. And as a DM, maybe that's, maybe instead of taking a look at them, you need to look at what you're doing and ask yourself, hey, am I engaging them enough? Or like, Yeah, I think when I was a kid, because the social interaction we were afraid of, you use the game as like a bridge to communicate or a bridge to interact, you know what I mean? And now it's like, we're, we're already social, but let's heighten that with a shared goal and a shared purpose, mm -hmm. you know, to, to break the ice, to make warm, fun memories together. And I'm much more comfortable with asking people what they think or, or changing course. Like this is not a movie or a comic book that's being published. If the continuity has to change yeah. for you to have a good time, that's the right thing to do. Yeah, that power sucks. Let's not use that anymore. Why don't you swap that out for another one? Nice. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if you thought this thing was going to work this way and now we realize according to the rules, it doesn't, maybe we won't do that anymore. You know, like that is far more important than rules lawyering and the letter of the law and all that kind of stuff if someone's not having a good time let's get to the heart of that and that's not to say i don't want to put my cast under pressure absolutely mm -hmm. you know losing I, I, one of the things i love about role-playing games is that on the turn of the dice unexpected things are going to happen that we can't plan for every eventuality and that's what makes it so fun yep. sometimes you get a total party kill and it's hilarious <laughs> right 
through no fault of our own, a series of ridiculous, you know, confluences, all of a sudden tragedy strikes and yep. we're howling with laughter or vice versa. All the best laid plans of the game master will unravel on a really good, fun, strategic option. Yep. And you realize it's better to go with it than to grind against it. I love that stuff. But there's also a limit where you look and you go, this isn't just putting someone under pressure or this is they are genuinely not having a good time or this is an extended series of misfortunes to such a degree that they are bummed out and this sucks and it's like yeah what is this game and why are we here yeah. you know what i mean yeah. and it's it's also how you set your expectations if we're playing call of cthulhu and everyone dies we cheer because mm -hmm. that's like that's the way the game goes <laughs> exactly. right exactly you know the elder gods win hearty hard but like if it <laughs> If we're supposed to be having a good old time, you know, otherwise, then let's let's change course and, and figure out why or why not, you know? Yeah. So with your experience in the world of role of live play and actual play, mm -hmm. before we completely get out of that topic, <laughs> is there is there any advice that you would give to somebody who is thinking of starting their own live play show or Twitch show or stream? Right. Um, I mean, the bad news is, man, is the field ever saturated and everyone thinks that they're going to have a big hit thing because it exists, right? Um, I This is very corny, but it's very true. Do the game because you want to play with others and interact with others. Don't do it because you think it's going to be a success. Don't do it because you think it's going to make you money or give you celebrity or some sort of thing like that. I think that's true of any creative endeavor. If you're making it, if, if you're trying to pre-load where you think it's going to be 10 steps from now, you're not thinking about step two. You yeah. know what I mean? And step two is, is this of quality? Make a game that you yourself would enjoy listening to and engaging with, right? When I write a story, I'm trying to write the story that I love that i am excited about that i want to read and if i'm playing a game i want to try and run the game that i want to play you know right. what i mean it doesn't always go the way you intend but if you at least go into it with that best foot forward then you've got the best chance of success if you're trying to look at what is the current trend if you're trying to to hedge all the bets and and shave off all the corners and make this perfect product mm it's going to feel as artificial as it is. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, it, you, you can't make the perfect stream game. You can't make the perfect whatever. You have to tap into people's excitement. You have to tap into your players' blisses and, and, and wind that thing you know, as tight as you can and, and have fun with it. Um, and it gets harder and harder to do if you have in the back of your mind that this is a that this is content mm, yeah. <laughs> that needs to be generated. You know what I mean? Yep. So like my friends and I, we did a podcast for a little while called the Danger Dice Gang. And I was running my friends through first edition modules with fifth edition rules. And it was me tapping into the nostalgia of those old modules and realizing some of the archaic and hokey things from them didn't translate well to a modern player base, right. sometimes to hilarious effect. And I would purposefully hue to the to the the adventure more often because that was part of the joke was it wasn't although there's a spontaneity element to it look at how structured this thing is in a very particular manner for a very particular type of play right um we had a lot of fun doing it and then real life got in the way and people got busy 
and and editing the episodes took way longer than recording the episodes Mm -hmm. and we had a we still have a huge chunk of audio raw audio that has not been edited and released because now it feels well it's four years out of date and who would listen to it anyways right and you sit there and you go who's going to go through that content listen to it all and because we trimmed it down to a tight most of the episodes were around an hour and so you don't see you don't see you don't hear us looking up uh, rules right. or the chatter back and forth on making a ruling. When you listen to that, I am the most organized damn dungeon master ever <laughs> because we make a bunch of decisions and then we edit the audio and then I just say the rule and then away we go. <laughs> and man, does it, it listens great. But, you know, I edited a bunch of the episodes and then my friend Keen and then Andrew edited episodes and all of, like, we didn't want to listen to it afterwards because you you're sick of hearing yourself and and it takes so long to get it down to that tight 60 minutes yep. per episode or sometimes shorter sometimes a little longer um it wasn't fun it wasn't it was fun to record with our friends and it was really not fun to put together the episodes yep. and we were like why are we doing this oh we do this because we love getting together with our friends and for a while the structure of we're making a podcast allowed us to prioritize it even though we were busy with our creative careers. Right. And so that was why it was worth doing. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And getting to spend time with people that I love and gaming. Right. But then all of a sudden when it became another responsibility, I was like, why am I doing this? (laughs) And I think a lot of people go into any kind of hobby that you're trying to turn into a vocation. It's going to change how you feel about it. It becomes a responsibility. Right. And and not everyone is tuned to make that handover or to change the mentality because they think it's still always going to be fun. And they're like, we'll get a bunch of free books and sponsors and all those things. You're like, don't, no, no, no. The, the, the audience building is going to take potentially years. Are you still cool with the amount of time that takes before it ever breaks through? If it ever breaks through, it will probably not break through. Yeah. You know? I think and so that's my advice on it is make the damn stream that you think is going to be awesome. Put all the qualities into it that you think are going to be awesome and be proud of having done it rather than trying to, you know, uh, tr- doing it for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent advice. I think uh, anybody who's working in a content creation kind of field you have to have two brains you have to be able to yeah turn off the one side that's having fun and plan out the business stuff and say okay here's the metrics here's the stuff i gotta worry about get it all sure. figured out down on paper and then turn that off don't think about and it's that hard it's hard you know creating. you can see a trajectory of almost every content creator every twitch streamer every major youtuber they go through an explosive not all of them of course if they're successful if they're lucky enough to be successful explosive growth and incredible And then all of a sudden, almost all of them will hit this weird point one, two years into it where they seem like they're on a rocket ride. And then they have a a video that says, I'm taking a break. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, to get them that far actually, you know, almost killed them in terms of time and dedication and that they've missed out on all these other opportunities or they're not spending time with their children or, you know, like all these things. And all of a sudden you go, that's the sacrifice, right? Like some people would say to me, how, how do you write this many books and, you know, do these conventions and all these other things? And the answer is 
uh, because I don't do certain other things. You know what I mean? Like I don't have any children. I don't have any pets. And that's not that those were decisions that were made that were not necessarily specific career, but it means that I'm spending time differently. Mm -hmm. You know, I go for long periods of time where I'm not socializing with my friends or the only friends I have are the ones on the con circuit because those are the only people I'm seeing consistently. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you, you're changing the social structure of your life in and around that career. Is it the right decision for me? Mm -hmm. Is it the decision for anyone else? No, everyone's got to make the choices and it's not a simple binary of do this or, or don't, you know, everyone's got a different threshold for what's going to work for them and how much work they can do or how they stay organized. Um, and so how do I do this stuff? Well, that thing that you do in the evening after you wrap up your day job, I usually don't do that thing. Like, you know, I don't watch a lot of TV and movies. I don't go out to sports games and I'm not having as much downtime as most people. Does that mean I'm better than you? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It's just different choices, different priorities. Yeah, for sure. But when you ask me about have I, you know, watched this full season of whatever the newest TV show is, the answer is probably no. <laughs> Sometimes I've heard it because <laughs> my wife's watching it downstairs right. while I'm here in my office clacking away. But, you know, I haven't watched it. Sometimes if it's good enough and it has enough gravity, I might get pulled into it and I get to watch it over a horrifically long span of time. So I'm out of date. And then I tell people, you know what? That uh, uh, Deadwood show is really good. And people are like, De- Deadwood? I'm like, yeah, we're watching Deadwood. It's really good. They're like, that show came out like a decade ago. I'm like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> you know, The Wire? The Wire is amazing. You know, <laughs> Jim. Um, let's talk about your work professional work in the game world for a half a second yeah um i want to talk about your tabletop stuff but let's just touch on really quickly there's a board game out there with wayward on it it's true based on your creations yeah i want to know about that process how did that happen um it was it's been highs and lows on that honestly the actual development of the game uh was great uh the launch of the game and the release of the game it's not gone the way we planned but that was just the nature of these things sometimes john gilmore the designer is amazing uh i had a mutual friend kind of put uh, me in touch with him because he was a really big comic book fan and he knew the books and um, he had done a game, most people know Dead of Winter. Yep. Uh, it's really fantastic. He's done a bunch of really awesome games. Um, and so I met him at, ooh, which convention was it? I can't remember the first convention I met him at. It might've been a Gen Con, but I don't, for some reason, I don't think it was. It might've been another show. Um, <clears throat> and we got along really well and just had a wonderful conversation. Uh, Ian Moss, who was working as one of his assistants at the time, was obsessed with skull kickers and so he was raving about skull kickers to john as well and so we just had great kind of interaction in general and um we put together the proposal for this game for uh idw games which the compa company uh was branching out into gaming content and so we essentially tailor made this game based on a bunch of design precepts that john had been kind of bouncing around in his head that he wanted to use and stuff that I really loved about co-op games. And we slowly put together this crazy kind of strategy game built on high risk, high reward kind of, of um, uh, resource management. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a really cool, fun process. I got uh, Steven, my co-creator on Wayward, to do a bunch of brand new artwork. 
Uh, Tamara and I colored all the new pieces for the, the board game. We really kind of designed it from the ground up, did a bunch of the graphic design, working with the IDW team to just make this thing the way we thought it should look and of a high quality that we you know felt it should have. But the game was originally supposed to be on Kickstarter and then plans changed around that based on other stuff that IDW was doing. And so we had this troubled kind of release pattern of not knowing when it was going to come out and how it was going to launch. Mm -hmm. um, we were trying to simultaneously build the game for, you know, like a, a pretty hardcore gamer audience. And then IDW had a very unique opportunity where they were approached by Barnes and Noble to release some games exclusively uh, for an exclusive period through Barnes and Noble. Oh. And so Barnes and Noble um, had the rights to release the game exclusively in their stores and they were going to shelve it near their manga because it has this Japanese flair with it. And we thought, oh my God, we're going to move so many units. But the game section of, of Barnes and Noble is a real catch-all. Some stores have a good game section and other stores don't. Yeah but all the stores were receiving copies. And from what we heard, some of them didn't put them out on the shelf or just tucked them at the bottom of a thing. And it just kind of came out and uh, we couldn't get traction with it. People weren't talking about it. And in the board game space, you need those reviews, you need those engagement, you need people telling other people about it. Hey, this is a really cool strategic co-op game from the guy that made Dead of Winter get this in your hands. Hey, comic book fans, go get this thing. And so Barnes and Noble had bought a certain number of them non-returnable. Um, and then they, uh, they just sort of sat on them and then they liquidated them. And then when it went to regular distribution, we didn't have a lot of momentum or buzz behind it. So regular game retailers ordered a handful of them. And the next thing we knew, IDW was like, hey, we're leaving the game space. <laughs> and it was like, oh, Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. That's the way that goes. So uh, it was weird because I love the game and I love the development process. And then there's all the commerce stuff that's out of my control. And so we have this cool game and I have it back now. I have all the files and I own it. Oh, and we're just trying to figure out what we want to do. <laughs> it may be one of those things where you leave it dormant for a while and then you bring this thing back out and people have never seen it. So then they think it's a brand new thing. Right. Uh, I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see how that goes. But um, I, I had a ton of fun working with John and I love that idea of making cool board games, but the field is also very, very packed right now. Yeah. And so it's a very different kind of a thing. And I don't know that space well enough to really understand the ins and outs of it. And it's even different from making a book because you have to do manufacturing and components and, and the, the cardboard punch chits and trays there's so and many other things and, involved with yep. the manufacturing of one of those boxes that i just did not appreciate until i was on the inside watching this process underway and stuff where i was like wouldn't it be cool if we had this and then someone's walking me through the cost and the production involved in having custom dice yeah it's crazy there's a reason why a lot of games they don't use custom dice and you're like wouldn't it be cooler if sure it would be are you willing <laughs> to pay x amount of money 
<laughs> every color you're adding to that dice, every face that's changed, every, is it a six-sided die? If not, oh boy, get ready. <laughs> Your production cost on those dice just went five times more expensive, you know? Why don't you make it six-sided instead? <laughs> you know, like, like all those things that you just take for granted. Hey, you want to do weird card sizes? Get ready, get ready. It's going to cost you a buttload, you know? Uh, it's fascinating mm -hmm. to, to see the other side of it and appreciate how much stuff goes into that box. Yeah. When you see the retail price, you're like $50 for a board game. <laughs> and then you crack it open and you go, yeah, every one of those little pieces, every one of those art, all those minis, all that stuff, it costs, man. It's yeah. uh, it's something. Yeah. Um, but you've also done tabletop role-playing products. Yes. Um, uh, there's the Skull Kickers book, but yep. you've also done, yep. you worked with Mr. Rothfuss on... Uh, Rick and Morty you've yeah we did that so I yeah I did a kickstarter for a combination <clears throat> graphic novel and uh tabletop role-playing uh campaign adventure for the 10th anniversary of Skull Kickers that came out on our 12th anniversary because that's very Skull Kickers <laughs> um but it, the book turned out beautiful we blew way past our original budget and uh page count on it oh so we promised that we were going to have a 24 page comic story and a like i think like a 60 page adventure it was supposed to be a module and then the final released book is a 36 page comic and a 160 page adventure thing cuz we couldn't cut anything cuz we're jerks and <laughs> and when you're your own project manager and you can just approve well we'll just add to the page count we'll just add more artwork we'll just that's a bad thing like normally i'm a much tighter project manager because I'm working with someone else's specs. And this time it was, well, it'd be fun to get so-and-so to do some more spot illos. Wouldn't it be great if we had a map for that? Oh, that's such a cool idea. We'll just expand that section. And so uh, I had a ton of fun doing it, but um, it was not the most economical of, of RPG projects. But at the end, I made it as a celebration of the book. And so I'm super proud of it. And in the end, that's all that matters for me on that particular project. Nice. It wasn't about like, I'm going to make this a highly profitable kind of vehicle. Um, Rick and Morty versus Dungeons and Dragons started as a comic thing that I did with Pat and Troy Little. And it was so popular that we did a sequel. Well, I did a sequel with Troy and Wiz of the Coast did an official starter set, yep. box set yep, that they brought me in to do um, development and writing on. And Troy did a bunch of new artwork on. And that was a really cool experience. Uh, I bit off more than I could chew with that thing where I promised I was going to write the majority of that adventure and then realized I was not writing the majority <laughs> of the adventure. Not because they took it away from me, but just because I had overcommitted on a bunch of things. Uh, so the broad outline got handed off to a bunch of amazing people at Wizards who picked up the, the torch on it. Um, so they deserve a just a ton of credit for... Um, for what they pulled together on that. One of the original jokes I had in the outline for that box set, which as soon as I say it to you, you will know the mistake that I had made. And for some reason, everyone went along with it until midway through development and they started play testing. Mm. So I originally had this funny idea where we were gonna do Rick's dungeon. Uh, Rick Sanchez's has this stupid dungeon idea and you were gonna have a map and only half the map had numbers on it, like the old under mountain. And, and then the latter half of the book would be 
just fill it in whatever you want. Like Rick doesn't care anymore. He's given up. He's sick of running the game for Morty and he walks away from the table. That would be the convention inside the game box. Mm -hmm. So you'd have a huge map that then you, with a bunch of blank spaces you could fill in. Funny, right? Not funny for the dungeon master and not funny for people who are picking this up for the very first time because they've never played Dungeons and Dragons before and the Rick and Morty IP has convinced them to try it. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's but yeah. what a funny joke that is to just leave people hanging. And if you were reading the adventure, you'd be like, Oh, that Rick Sanchez. And then they start playtesting it and realizing, oh, this is nightmare fuel. Why did we do that? That's yeah. a terrible idea. That's a terrible idea. We have to actually cinch this thing up and make it function because because people are buying a product and a disproportionate number of these people may never play DD before. And so my, yeah, that was a learning. <laughs> that was a thing that I suddenly realized. So we all of a sudden, the word count totally, you know, flipped and changed. And we had to scramble to do a bunch of fixes on it. And it turned out, the game box really turned out. Yeah. But that's because of like Kate Welsh and uh, James Hake and like all these guys busting their ass to make that thing work properly. Because mm. uh, a funny joke on paper did not become a funny joke in 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 product you know so. it'd make a interesting limited edition product for like really you know seasoned dms who are rick and oh, yeah. fans and also if you look at the D D, the rick's dungeon the first i think like i want to say 10 rooms they're they're totally different on the map but if you actually track them they almost perfectly line up to frank metzer's uh, basic dungeon from the red box <laughs> so the encounters are almost that there's a rat encounter and a goblin encounter and a magic mouth and a statue and that's a that we were supposed to use the original menser map um because that was something that i wanted to do and they were totally cool with it right up until we realized the back the the uh, so it was supposed to be the menser dungeon and then it was supposed to be um Oh crap, into the unknown or, or, or something. No, no, no. It was um um what's the module from uh keep on the borderlands? We were oh, ripping yeah. off keep on the borderlands and we were gonna use that map and rip off a bunch because it was just Rick clearly writing over top of <laughs> the original encounters with his own crap. That was one of the jokes. But then we realized we weren't filling in over half the dungeon and and structurally it wasn't working. But if you look, those original 10 rooms, I wrote the first like 20 rooms, but those first 10 are a ripoff of the of the red box. So oh. if you read it with an eye for that, you'll see them perfectly now. So I'm yeah. going to check that out. Yeah, yeah it's fun. Uh, and then the other, the, the gaming product that sounds funny because I'm telling you about a board game that wasn't fully successful and i'm telling you about the the skull kickers game that ran over budget and off thing and then i'm telling you about the mistakes made on the rick and morty box set you're like has this guy ever successfully produced a gaming product they're all successful they're all interesting they are products well, now yeah this is all behind the curtain yeah. you know what happens but the thing that's actually run almost exactly the way even better than i had ever hoped is the young adventures guys mm. the dungeons and dragons young adventures guys is been uh i I can't take the credit for a big chunk of it, but like a triumph in terms of of that line of books. The the it was originally supposed to be one book. That's the funniest part about it. It wasn't even supposed to be my book. Um, I went into the wizard's office in uh, let's say 2017, maybe early 2018, to consult on a book that would eventually be Descent into Avernus, 
because it was Baldur's Gate related, they knew that. And uh, I had been writing in Baldur's Gate for the comics. Mm -hmm. Adam Lee, who is the head of narrative at Wizards, he was approving a bunch of the comic stuff that I was doing and loving it and could see that I really deeply knew D&D. And so on almost every major D&D release, if you look at the credits, there's usually a creative consultant who's an outside person that they bring in to help shake things up. So like Pendleton Ward, the guy that created Adventure Time, mm -hmm. he's the creative consultant on um, uh, Tomb of Annihilation. Oh, that's and cool. that's one of the reasons why there's dinosaurs in there because he really loves dinosaurs. Um, <laughs> and so I came in for a week to consult on what would eventually be called Descent into Avernus. But at the time it was, I think the, the code name for it was Eclipse. Um, and so I, we were working on this thing called Eclipse and it was trying to figure out how we were gonna incorporate hell and what Baldur's Gate was gonna be doing and, and all this kind of stuff. And we generated a bunch of, well, we whiteboarded tons of brainstorming. Um, that's where all that Mad Max Fury Road stuff comes from. That's where the, I came up with soul coins, mm. which is the currency that they spend in, in um, you know, in hell. Yeah. Um, we all generated tons of weird stuff, tons, tons of it on the cutting room floor, but a bunch of it that got in there and vastly changed the adventure. And so during the day, we would be whiteboarding and brainstorming, usually with Adam, but sometimes, you know, Perkins or, or Jeremy Crawford or Jim Haker, a bunch of different guys in the room just jamming. Um, and then we would go out for lunch and dinner and we would just chat. We would chat about growing up as gamers or, or you know, our favorite adventures or sometimes non DD things occasionally, but not very much. <laughs> um, but one of the things that came up was how I started playing when I was eight years old. And the original red box set is nine and up and I, or 10 and up. And I know that because my brother would say, this is too old for you <laughs> as like a joke, right? And um, like six, seven months later, after we wrapped up that like I did the consulting for a week in the office, but then I did some writing for them afterwards and still doing the comics. Adam just contacts me out of the blue and he says, you know, we're working with Random House, specifically an imprint at Random House called 10 Speed. And they want to do a product for younger kids for D&D, but not a game product like, like rolling dice and playing the game, but just like introducing these concepts of what D&D is for that age group, mm -hmm. eight to ostensibly eight to 12 year olds. And I, and he said, um, you know, that conversation that we had when you were in the office, all about playing when you were eight, I want you to get on the phone with 10 speed. I will pay you two hours of consulting just to tell them the specific qualities that you found in those old D&D books and why it ignited your imagination. And I was like, oh, that'd be so cool. And I got off the phone and I told my wife, I said, I don't want to get paid for two hours of consulting. This is the thing I've thought about all my life. Mm -hmm. Like, I literally want to write this thing. And she's like, then you should write it. I said, but they probably already have their own authors and their own people. And she said, well, just, you know, turn up the sub charm and like, let's see what happens. <laughs> so I get on this call and it's real blue sky. They don't know what this thing is. And I tell them my story and then I instantly pivot and say, I know what this product is. And I said, it's a guidebook. It's a visual guidebook for kids that will get them excited about making their own original fantasy stories. And it just so happens to line up to the worlds of D&D &D and the ideas of being an adventurer and going off into the unknown. Mm -hmm. And they said, do you 
wow, that sounds amazing. Do you, do you want to write a proposal? And I banged it out that night because I had to get it out of my head. Wow. And it was called The Young Adventurer's Guide to Dungeons and Dragons, one book. And I sent it to them and they pretty much approved it within a week. And we were starting to talk contract and all of a sudden I was going to be doing a, a middle grade random house book. And I started writing this thing before I got the specs of how those books work because <laughs> I had to get it out of my head because right, I was so right. excited. And I wrote close to triple the word count of a middle grade book. And they were like, what have you done? And I was just like, well, this is the book. You need all these pieces. You need to be able to introduce the idea of race and class and an adventuring party and going into these dungeons and using magic and treasure and monsters. And they were like, okay, okay, you got to calm down. What if we made this two books? We'll make a, a hero book and a monster book. And I was like, great. And so we started splitting it up. Yeah. And then we broke it into these two books. And the minute we started breaking, and we're still negotiating the contract. They're like, you shouldn't be writing this much before we've signed the deal. But I'm too excited and I can't stop. And then I've got too much content. And so we come back and we say, let's make it three books. We're going to do a hero book and a monster book in a magic book. No, a dungeon book. And they were like, okay. And that was the actual contract we signed was for three books. And as we were doing the first book that was um, all supposed to be character classes, we realized magic had blown the, the page count. And so we said, okay, it's going to be four books. The magic book and the, the martial hero book and then the monster book and then the dungeon book. And that was the actual contract, signed, sealed, delivered. That was the launch lineup of books. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, Wars and Weapons, Monsters and Creatures, Dungeons and Tombs, and uh, Wizards and Spells. <clears throat> and that's what we launched with. Uh, but there was tons of stuff on the cutting room floor almost instantly because we just wrote our faces off. Mm -hmm. And I had overcommitted myself like crazy for four books. And so... Um, Stacy stepped in to help because she is a professional writer and a gamer and all that sort of stuff. And then we had overcommitted her as well because this was a crazy amount of work to get it in under the deadline of what traditional publishing requires with everything else going on. So we got uh, Andrew uh, Wheeler, a good friend of ours, to also contribute. And um, originally we had envisioned we were going to reuse artwork from all the D&D books. But the fear was that that regular gamers would consider these lesser books, that they were stripped down, um, miniaturized monster manual, player's handbook, dungeon mm -hmm. master's guide or whatever. And we didn't want to confuse the audience. So at first we were like, well, we'll have all new cover artwork, of course. Then it was, well, what if we got a few key pieces were new artwork? And when the salespeople at um, <clears throat> Random House were going to all their retailers into the librarians and stuff and explaining what these books would be and showing them some temp spreads and the temp artwork we had for the for the covers the response was so good and was so amazing that Tenspeed came back and said we want to do all new artwork that's cool and they went to wizards and they said can you help us art direct this and they said we don't have the resources we're making the game books jim will do it and so now i'm art directing <laughs> the book and working with the art team and the art studio to do all that interior artwork. And we're doing art descriptions and sending revision notes, sort of pre-editing it before Wizards signed off on it. So the books have been an incredible amount of work, but they've also been insanely uh, successful. Um, they've done exactly what we want them to do. They're sold in the, in the school book clubs, they're in libraries, they're in five different languages now. 
um, the three book series that became, well, one book, two book, four books is now, we're working on book eight and nine right now, which is amazing. And uh, we'd like to keep them going all the way through at least 2024. Um, and we get fan mail from kids all over the world. Uh, they send us pictures of their character sheets and their drawings of their That's cool. of their characters and their monsters. Um, yeah, we've we've it's incredible the photos that we get from parents. Uh, these kids clutching their books, sitting at the table with their parents playing D and D, and they've got their own books. That's mm -hmm. um, it's the best selling thing I've ever done. Like if you look at my Amazon authors page, my top six books are all the young adventurers guides and the box set is my number seven and then like rick and morty dnd rick and morty or sorry stranger things in dnd and then my marvel stuff starts to <laughs> creep in it doesn't even make my top 10 wow. bestsellers of all time yeah out of so, all the gyms of stories that's the one that's the most gyms of it is very so yeah. yeah the young adventures guides are they will outlast me they will they will be my legacy that when i die someone will say that they start playing dnd because of these little cool pocketbooks uh and i will be very very proud of that damn right and if that if that enhances the legacy and and helps another generation of players come into the hobby then i have done done good by it so we're really really proud of the books we love them um, they remind me and they reconnect me to my youth and the excitement that I had to be a gamer and to tell stories, you know, and, and even people who are very, um, I, I'm the praise that we've gotten for them is, is wonderful amongst the community and everything else. And they feel like a very pure spot. Some people can get really frustrated with Wizards of the Coast and the commercialization that, you know, that is underway of D&D because it is a very potent brand right now. Mm -hmm. But we we seem to be able to sort of sidestep a lot of that criticism and people are like, these things are amazing. <laughs> these things should have been around when I, you know, we got, I got fan mail from Ed Greenwood about them. Where oh, he nice. said, if these would have been around in the eighties, we would have had kids playing, more kids playing D&D, you know? Like, yep. Yeah, it was very, very um, flattering and wonderful. And there's something very pure about it. I remember I told, um, one of the nights we're at the night that we were talking about how I started gaming, we're at this bar and we're, we're having a pub dinner and I'm talking to Chris Perkins and Jeremy and, and um, just, uh, uh, Adam and all these guys about gaming. And I said, you know, when I was in high school, I would go on and on and on about the, the potency of gaming that, that it allows you to get out of yourself and be someone else and, and discover things about, you know, without fear, you can engage socially. Mm -hmm. You know, I was funny in game before I was ever confident to be funny as Jim. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was I was devious and 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 confident in game long before I was ever confident and devious, maybe you know, in person <laughs> or whatever. Um, and so I, I I would tell my friends in high school this, if you can imagine, like for real, and they would mock me for it. My nerd friends would mock me. Yeah. And because I would say more, if more people played role-playing games, they would be better people. They would be better socialized people. And they said, we're sitting in the basement, you know, eating Cheetos and stuff. Like, Jim, we are not well socialized and you're an idiot. This is not going to change the world. Um, and they said, look, one of my buddies, he had a really biting sarcasm. He said, you're not on an infomercial with like an international cast of children 
<laughs> you know, talking about about Dungeons and Dragons and role playing games, trying to sell it. Like, there, no one's throwing streamers and and cheering about about you know the power of role playing games. And so that became an in joke where they would say, whenever I would start to get idealistic about role playing games, they would go, "Oh, here he goes with the streamers and kids." Here he goes, streamers and kids. Okay, yep, yeah, Jim, yep. The, you know, role-playing game is going to change the world. Yep, yep, yep. And they would laugh about it. And I would laugh because in my head it felt so idealistic and overblown. And so I'm telling Chris Perkins about this. And Perkins is just quiet, you know, drinking his beer or whatever. And then he just stops and he goes, yeah, but you were right. Yep. And I was like, what? And he goes, you are sitting at a bar with the lead development team of Dungeons and Dragons, the game is bigger than it's ever been, and you're part of it. We're paying you money, and we flew you in to sit around talking about role-playing games for a week, so we can make a new product that is going to, if the New York Times bestseller list actually would categorize game books, we would be New York Times bestsellers in an instant, because you're right mm -hmm. and i stopped and he just stopped for a second he raised his glass and he goes streamers and kids wins and we toasted that and, uh, yeah so i feel uh i really do feel like that stuff's come full circle my whole kind of creative career has has rounded itself on these games and on this imaginative sort of stuff and uh if i can keep that that childlike kind of wonderment and joy going then uh i think things will be okay well, that'll wrap up another conversation around the table. Thanks, Jim, for stopping by, and thank you for listening. I'll let you show yourself out while I clean up, but be sure to come back next week, here at the corner of Story and Game.